welcome to the Linnaean Society of London. If you know the extension of the... Please wait a moment. I'm Stella Sandford, Professor in the Centre for Research in Modern European Philosophy at Kingston University. Today I'm in the library at the Linnaean Society, looking at a very special book from Linnaeus' own collection. In fact, it's four books bound into one volume, and three of those are by Aristotle, the 4th century BCE Greek philosopher. These are his three books on animals, the history of animals, the parts of animals, and the generation of animals. Linnaeus has the Latin translations by the 15th century scholar Theodorus Gaza, and this volume is dated 1513, printed in Venice. The books within this volume have no frontispieces, but on the first page of the first book, The History of Animals, is inscribed in Latin from the Library of Linnaeus, 1784, with the signature of James Edward Smith, who purchased Linnaeus's library and founded the Linnaean Society in 1788. So here we have a very old book, in the sense that we have a material object that is over 500 years old and has survived in remarkably good condition. Um, It would be special and a privilege to handle this book, whatever its provenance, but knowing that it comes from Linnaeus's own library transforms it into something even more extraordinary because one can't help wondering whether this book, this material object here, played a part in Linnaeus's scientific work. It is also, of course, a very old book in another sense because its original was written more than 2,000 years ago. So what is this book for us today? What in particular is Aristotle's work, The History of Animals, for us today? The French philosopher and historian of science Gaston Bachelard wrote in the 20th century that libraries attached to scientific labs tend to become divided into two parts. Some books from those libraries form a kind of museum where books are consulted as one might study a Stone Age axe in a museum collection. These books become historical artefacts with no very real connection to the living science being done in the lab. But other of the books are used like, say, microscopes are used. That is, they are tools, theoretical tools perhaps, that are used in the advancement of the scientific practice. Now, Linnaeus didn't have a lab exactly, and we don't know whether in the 1720s, 1730s, this book, Aristotle's History of Animals, was already for Linnaeus a museum artefact or was still a scientific tool. Maybe we would be inclined to think that it must now be a museum artefact because it is hard to believe that there could be any area of the natural and biological sciences that hadn't far surpassed this 4th century BCE knowledge. Even if Aristotle got some things right, and his level of knowledge was really extraordinary, we wouldn't go to this book now, rather than its modern successors, to find out about the natural world. So is this edition of the history of animals in Linnaeus' library just a museum artefact, like a stone axe? Is it now just an historical curiosity? Or is it still a living intellectual tool? Let's look in the book itself. 
Aristotle's history of animals begins with statements about the different kinds of parts of which animals are composed. And it is then an investigation into which animals have which parts and the differences between the same parts in different animals, seeking out where possible the things that make each particular kind of animal into the kind of animal that it is. In history of animals, other kinds of differences are also to be considered. Differences in animals' manner of life, their activities and their habits. For example, where they live, where they feed, what they eat, whether or not they breathe air or have blood, whether they move about, and if so, how they move about. Aristotle also asks, are they gregarious or solitary? Are they nocturnal or do they live by daylight? And one of the most important questions for Aristotle, how do they generate others of their own kind? Are they oviparous or viviparous? Do they have separate male and female? If so, what, what are the males like? What are the females like? Now, I think that anyone coming to this book for the first time would be astonished at the sophistication of some of Aristotle's observations, astonished at the level of detail in many of the descriptions. One example is his description of the development of the embryo in hen's eggs. With the common hen, after three days and three nights, there is the first indication of the embryo. With larger birds, the interval being longer, with smaller birds, shorter. Meanwhile, the yolk comes into being, rising towards the sharp end, where the primal element of the yolk is situated, and where the egg gets hatched. And the heart appears, like a speck of blood in the white of the egg. This point beats and moves as though endowed with life, and from it, as it grows, two vein ducts with blood in them lead on to a twisted course to each of the two surrounding envelopes. A little afterwards, the body is differentiated, at first very small and white. The head is clearly distinguished, and in it the eyes, swollen out to a great extent. When the egg is now ten days old, the chick and all its parts are distinctly visible. The head is still larger than the rest of its body, and the eyes larger than the head, but still devoid of vision. About the twentieth day, if you open the egg and touch the chick, it moves inside and chirps, and it is already coming to be covered with down. When, after the twentieth day is passed, the chick begins to break the shell. Of course, Aristotle didn't get everything right. He was convinced, for example, that eels were spontaneously generated out of mud or out of the earth's guts, which seems to be the name for a kind of worm or lava which generates spontaneously out of the mud. But even with all its mistakes, there is nothing to match Aristotle's history of animals in the West for centuries afterwards. Compared to the bestiaries of the Middle Ages with their symbolic and moral cast and their fantastic beasts, Aristotle's history of animals still seems astonishingly modern, astonishingly scientific, we might say. And well into the modern era, scientists were referring to Aristotle's works on animals in the belief that they still contained relevant and useful scientific knowledge. Richard Owen, who was the man responsible for the creation of the Natural History Museum in London, 
devoted considerable attention to Aristotle in his first Hunterian lectures to the Royal Society of Surgeons in 1837. Owen reminds his listeners that the library of the Royal Society of Surgeons is particularly rich in the editions of the works of Aristotle, especially of the treatise on the history of animals, he says, mentioning in particular a rare and beautiful copy of a first edition, that would be 1492, of the translation by Theodorus Gaza, the same translation that we now find in Linnaeus's library. Owen connects Aristotle's zoology and the Hunterian collection. I regard the contemplation of the extensive series of preparations of the generative organs, accumulated and arranged by Hunter, as greatly aiding the study and comprehension of those parts of the writings of Aristotle which relate to the same function. Perhaps there is no anatomical collection in Europe which more fully and closely illustrates the text of Aristotle than that of Hunter. For Owen, then, in 1837, Aristotle's scientific observations were still considered to be of value, and it seems that he considered Hunter's anatomical collections as an aid to the study of Aristotle, as if the preserved specimens of Hunter's 18th century collections, three-dimensional illustrations of the Book of Aristotle, as well as the Book of Nature. If Owen is to be believed, then, in 1837, this 2,000-year-old text was still part of the lab, its scientific potential not yet exhausted, or the book not yet relegated to the status of museum artefact. But that situation would not last. Although Darwin himself was, in the last years of his life, a great admirer of Aristotle's achievements in zoology, no biologist or naturalist today is going to consult Aristotle in order to learn something of scientific interest that they couldn't learn from contemporary authorities. So it seems that from the standpoint of the contemporary biological sciences, the knowledge potential of Aristotle's history of animals is exhausted. Maybe, in this sense, this book in Linnaeus's library is now a museum artefact. Interesting, because it was one of Linnaeus's possessions, but of no more interest than, say, his washstand or his shaving kit. But what may be a museum artefact for the scientist is something else for the philosopher or the historian, including the philosopher and historian of natural history. Books never become just artefacts from the point of view of these disciplines. For philosophy and history, the knowledge potential of Aristotle's history of animals is in principle inexhaustible, although the science of natural history may progress in such a way that its successive stages transcend each other and render earlier stages obsolete, this is not the case for the history or philosophy of natural history. The history of natural history is not just a linear narration of events. It is a continual, recursive reinterpretation of the relations between past thinkers and contexts. This must include a consideration of the role that naturalists' philosophical commitments played whether explicitly or implicitly, in their scientific endeavours. If we want to understand the history of natural history, we also need to understand its relation to the history of philosophy. When it comes to thinking about Linnaeus, then, this book in his library, 
Aristotle's history of animals is not a relic of ages past. It is a possible starting point for new investigations, investigations into Linnaeus's intellectual debts to Aristotle, and even investigations into what contemporary natural history via Linnaeus might still owe to Aristotle, for good or ill. The results of Aristotle's inquiries in natural history may no longer be relevant as science, but the inquiring natural historian will still want to know what she owes to Aristotle, and here in Linnaeus's library with this book is a tool with which to begin that inquiry.